Well, let's begin this morning by reading a text of Scripture. Would you stand with me one more time? And we'll look at 1 Timothy 1, 8-17. We're just continuing to refresh ourselves with this text because it provides such a wonderful perspective for sharing the Gospel um, and teaching the Gospel and the law rightly. Let's read this together in unison. 1 Timothy 1, 8-17. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to You together as the body of Christ this morning, and collectively we make the confession that we were just like Paul. We were blasphemers, persecutors, insolent opponents. We were, we are the greatest of sinners. But Father, we, we rejoice because You have shown us mercy. You've been so patient with us. Even now that we are Your children, You are still patient with us as we wrestle against our sin and our pride and our stupidity, our slowness to learn, our love for the world. Father, thank You for Your patience. Thank You for teaching us. Thank You for disciplining us. Thank You for pointing our eyes to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank You for taking our guilt and our punishment and placing them on Him on the cross. Thank You for taking His perfect obedience and clothing us with it. Thank You for calling us children, chosen, forgiven, loved, redeemed, heirs. Father, what You have done in our lives to make us new creatures and give us a new identity and give us a new nature, it's astounding. It's wonderful. Father, Thank You that You've set us free from sin. We are not sinless, but we are no longer enslaved to sin. 
we can walk in newness of life. Thank You, Father, for putting us in union with Christ. Our old nature has died with Christ, is buried in His tomb, never to rise again. And, is, and we are risen with Him with a new nature and a new heart and new orientations. Father, thank You for these things. These are glorious, glorious, hope-giving truths. Especially when we struggle with our own selves and our sin. Help us to look to You. Help us to look to what You have said we will become. Thank You that You who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And may we apply the truths of our own salvation this morning from Your Word to our own lives, but also as we consider witnessing to a friend who, who is homosexual. Help us not to see that sin as so much separate from other sins that it cannot be forgiven and changed and that people who have struggled with that sin cannot become a part of the body of Christ and thrive with us. Father, teach us these things. Help us to be effective witnesses and disciple makers for Your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The last two weeks, as we've continued in our series called The Bible and Homosexuality, we, we've been talking about arguments that may come from a homosexual friend that you might be able to witness to. And we've, we've talked about, especially from this text, we've talked about how it's very important that when you're talking to a friend struggling with a life-controlling sin, that, that you don't just automatically talk about salvation, because especially today, a lot of times people don't know the first thing about the cross. They don't understand the righteousness of Christ. And so, you must build in their mind and communicate to them the truths that lead up to that. You need to understand something of a biblical worldview first. Who is God? Who is man? What is the Bible? And then you will begin to apply to their hearts the law of God. Because the purpose of the law is to expose sin. Until the law is applied to the conscience of an individual, they will not see their need for salvation. They will not see their need for Christ and His saving work. And so over the last couple of weeks, we addressed more intellectual arguments, such as, I'm an atheist and love is love. Might be something you hear. Or another argument we addressed is the Old Testament laws don't apply to me today. Of course, that's an effort to get out from underneath the authority of and the accountability to a holy God and His law. We also talked about the argument that says the Bible doesn't address same-sex attraction. It doesn't even talk about a monogamous, covenantal, loving, homosexual marriage. So again, that's an effort to critique and interpret the Bible by personal experience. We've talked about these things. Today I want to move on to arguments that you may hear from a friend that are more personal in nature. More sensitive. But they are far from being outside of the capacity of the wisdom and power of God's Word to address. And so I want you to really think about these things with me this morning and understand what the Bible says to, to answer these these arguments. The three arguments that I want to talk about today, and you can see them in your outline and your bulletin. 
One, I was born this way. I was born homosexual. Number two, I was abused. And that's why I'm the way I am. Number three, same-sex attraction. I'm abbreviating it SSA. You can see that in your notes. Same-sex attraction is okay as long as I don't act on it. It's okay in my mind. It's okay in my heart. I can't, I can't do anything about it. It's there. But as long as I don't act on it, it's fine. And I want to say up front that, that these times of, of addressing some of these arguments, I cannot be comprehensive with this. I think that's probably obvious to you. I'm going to touch on some truths that must be a part of your interaction. I can't cover them in the depth that they, they deserve. None of these matters can be taken lightly. Like I said last week, we can't just shoot from the hip and hope for the best. Right? We need to seek to be diligent to give those whom we communicate these truths to, the depths of God's Word the best we can and to love them through it, care for them personally. And so, we make uh, each one of these arguments are, are real and they're complicated perspectives and painful and deep situations that, that must be handled carefully and gently and lovingly, compassionately. And you know, I think what I want to say also as we we use this time to prepare for communicating truth to others as we seek to, to lead them to Christ. I want you to also notice, please, that the truths we're going to talk about are profoundly helpful and powerful for us in our own struggle against sin. What gives you hope that you will be able to overcome the sins that you deal with weekly? And it's those same gospel truths that you can give to others that will give them some hope to be able to turn to Christ and find Him to be a powerful Savior. So we'll look at these together today. I really, I want us to be amazed at God's power to save. To consider some of the most glorious facets of the Gospel that we all need to just feast on so that we can overflow with these things to those we talk to. Ah, there is not an excuse to refuse Christ. He is a powerful and glorious Savior. So the main idea that uh, we've been repeating throughout this time, and it really comes from the emphasis of Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 8-17, is keep speaking these sound doctrines. They accord with the Gospel. Keep speaking sound doctrines that accord with the Gospel, saying that Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Paul does in this first chapter. We're following his pattern. He says, this is what the law calls sin. It's contrary to sound doctrine. It's outside of the biblical worldview. If this is who God is, this, this way of life doesn't even make sense. Not in the sphere of truth. So keep speaking that sound doctrine and apply God's law. Use it rightly. The law doesn't make people earn eternal life because we're sinful and weak, but it does expose our sin and it points us to Christ. That's why Galatians says the law is a schoolmaster. Right? It shows you your sin and then tells you, run to Christ. Him who completed the law in our behalf. And give the Gospel. Tell them that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So the first, the first argument that I want to talk about today, and 
I don't have much on the PowerPoint this morning. I want you to turn with me to these texts. The first, the first argument that you may hear is, I was born this way. I was born this way. I was born gay. I was this way since I was a kid. I had these sort of attractions ever since I was young. Maybe I have the gay gene. This is another way of saying that they are not responsible for being a homosexual and that they cannot change from being a homosexual. This is one of those themes that, that communicates that this sin is their identity. They view this sin as their identity and that's such an enslaving concept. How would the Lord want us to answer that, friend? Well, first of all, Letter A there. I, I, I want to throw this out in front and then the rest of the time we're really going to just be looking in Scripture. There is no clear scientific evidence for a gay gene. I want you to know that. If you don't, please, please know that. Some people talk about a gay gene as if it is unquestionably real. They may say that they are gay because that is in their genetics and since God created their genetics, He must be okay with them being this way just as God is okay with someone that He's given blue eyes or brown hair to. Built into my gene. There is no clear scientific evidence for a gay gene. In fact, the research that has been done about this, and you could imagine that lots has been done, the research would strongly suggest the opposite, that there, that there isn't. One of the fields of study that indicates that homosexuality is not part of a person's unalterable genetic makeup is the studies that have been done on identical twins. Identical twins, obviously, they share the same genetic makeup. That's what makes them identical twins. So, so if one had the gay gene, what? The other one would too. 100% of the time, in fact. This is the nature of being an identical twin. In, two, in the year 2000, Australian researchers released a study on identical twins in which at least one of the twins was a homosexual. And what do you think they found? Well, 62% of the twins, with 62% of the twins, the other twin was not homosexual. In 2010, and I'm going to quote this, uh, I'm quoting the, an author who said this, in 2010, the Swedish twin registry was examined to see how many identical twin pairs were at least one of the pairs described himself as gay were both living a homosexual lifestyle. The researchers showed that seven out of 71 identical twin pairs were both gay. And that comes from a book called Love into Light by Peter Hubbard, which I've recommended to you for your, for your equipping. Here is a quotation from the American Psychological Association. Quote, There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influence on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. You know what that says? I don't know. That's what that says, right? We don't know how people become this way. Here's a quotation from the National Association for Research and Treatment of Homosexuality. Quote, there is no such thing as a gay gene. 
And there's no evidence to support the idea that homosexuality is simply genetic. Numerous examples exist of people who have modified their sexual behavior. Very interesting. So I think it's important to put that out in front. There is plenty of research that you can look into that shows that there isn't a gay gene. Or that there is at least no scientific evidence to that being true. Secondly, and more importantly, we need to ask the question, well, how do people then become sexually sinful? How, how do people have a same-sex attraction? Where does that come from? And do you know the Bible has answers for this? The Bible tells you why people become homosexual. And as I look at these as we look at these verses together, I want to encourage you, don't let the familiarity of these verses for you rob you of their impact for this particular issue. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3? How is it that someone becomes homosexual? That has the same-sex attraction. Really, we can ask, how is it that anyone becomes sinful sexually or in any other way? Where does that come from? And really, what we're doing is we're going to answer the question, is what is the nature of man? That's the big uh, biblical worldview question that we're answering. Who is man? What is the nature of man as the Bible reveals him? How does understanding our nature make sense of the presence of sin and even homosexuality? Look at these verses. You know them well, but just take them in. This is the Apostle Paul describing every human being. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Depravity and sin have touched human understanding. So our mind is depraved. No one seeks after God. Our desires are depraved. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our will is depraved. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Our verses, verses 13 and 14, our words and certainly our hearts from which our words come are depraved. Verse 14, or verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Our actions are depraved. Verse, 9, verse 18, there is no fear of God before our eyes. Our perspectives are depraved. We don't fear God. We don't do what is right. We don't even want God. Did you see that? No one seeks after God. We don't want God. We cannot understand. We, we don't get it. We are utterly sinful. Every part of our being is touched by the presence and, and the power of sin apart from Christ. And Paul notes here, look at verse 9, what then? Are Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So ethnicity doesn't help. doesn't matter what ethnic group you come from. This still describes sinful nature, sinful man, totally depraved in every part. Look at verses 19 and 20. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Listen, verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. With a nature as is described in verses 10 through 18, that means being good or trying to be good, verse 20, trying to keep the law, that doesn't help either. Without Christ, we're utterly hopeless to be anywhere near what God has originally created human beings to be. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Human depravity is described further. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul again describing us before we are saved. Every human being is born this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's what God, that's how God calls us. Now, our bodies are alive, but spiritually, we're dead to God. We do not have spiritual stimulus. Well, then what is it that drives us? If it's not spiritual affections for God and His will, what is it that drives a person? Look at it. In which you once walked, following the course of the world. It's the, it's the world system that drives you and tells you what you want and what you should do and who you should be. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan's desires. Worldly desires. Look at our nature. We're called sons of disobedience. We are, that's our heredity. Sons of disobedience. Daughters of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived. We live in what? The passions of our flesh. We live according to these passions when, when, when before we're saved. Before Christ changes us. We live carrying out the desires of our body. Carrying out the desires of the mind. And by nature, are children of wrath. That's our nature. The very essence of our being is people who live deserving the wrath of God. People who live taking the cues from the world and the evil one. Carrying out, doing what the desires of our body tell us. Letting those desires define who we are and how we think. That's how Paul describes our depravity. That's our nature before Christ. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, just over a couple of pages. And we're going to kind of skip through and look at a couple of verses because Paul is talking about who we were and then who we are now in Christ. But I want to catch in these verses, notice who we were before we were saved. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, as unbelievers do. In the futility of their minds. Our minds are futile. Our minds choose worthlessness. That's the idea. They're darkened in their understanding. We don't understand life as God God would communicate it to us. We're alienated, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, right? The feelings of the, of the senses drive us. We're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
Look at verse 22. The old self. That's how Paul calls that life before Christ. He labels it the old self. The old man. That's who you used to be before Christ. This is how every person comes into the world. The old self. It belongs to the former manner of life. It's corrupt through what? Sinful, deceitful desires. That's what defines the old way. Desires that lie to you and tell you, if you follow Me, I'll satisfy you. But it's slavery and disappointment. That's the old life. Colossians 3, you don't have to turn there, but Colossians 3, 5-9, through you could jot those verses down, describes that same sort of life, the old way, the old man, the old sinful nature. The question is, is why are we like this? Why are people born like this? Why are we we're all born this way? Why? The Bible answers that too. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Again, I encourage you, take these verses down that we're going through and just really study them and, and, and carry them with you because you'll need them. You will need them when you share these things with someone who is still enslaved to sin. Romans 5.12, look at it carefully. This is how we became, this is how we were born with a sinful nature like what we've been describing. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through what? One man. Sin. The very presence of sin entered the world through one man. Who was that? Adam. And what came with sin? Death through sin. Why? Because God told Adam, the day that you sin, the day that you choose to be your own God and exchange Me for you to worship, that's the day you're going to die. And so death spread to all men because all sin. See, we all, we all have the disease. We all have the disease called sin. We all have this sinful nature. We all deserve death because we are inherently sinful. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. In other words, even though the law wasn't written down on scrolls yet, people were still sinning. They just didn't realize how sinful they are. But we are. At very nature, we are sinful. That's why we do what we do. That's why we desire what we desire. When did that condition begin? Do you see the sinfulness of man? Why are we like this? We inherited it from Adam. When does that begin? When did that condition begin for you? At birth. Psalm 51.5 says, David's confessing, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. At the moment of conception, this verse shows that you're a human being with a sinful nature. At conception, you inherit, just like you inherit your parents' traits, you inherit that sinful nature. Psalm 58.3 the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. 
We don't have any, there's no time as human beings where we were not sinful. You're born with that sinful nature. It's who you are in your very heart. How deep does our depravity go? All the way to the heart. Everyone, notice the heading again, letter B, right? Everyone is born with a sinful nature and a sinful heart with sinful orientations. You see that? That's, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Everyone is born with a sinful nature and a sinful heart with sinful orientations. That sinful nature affects the very core of your being, the command center of who you are apart from Christ. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19 through 20a, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. We're born with a sinful nature, with a sinful heart, with sinful orientations. That's everybody. John 8.34, Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now step back. Think about what we just read in those verses. With that biblical perspective of man, that's your, that's your biblical worldview, by the way, right there. Who is man? This is man. With that perspective, is it any wonder why we see people practicing homosexuality? Why we see people practicing any kind of sin? Why does it shock us? It shouldn't. Understand who we are in our heart, in our orientation. It makes perfect sense. This is why people live lives filled with sin. This is why people do all kinds of sin. This is why people begin to think that certain sins define their identity. It's not about being born with a genetic disposition toward homosexuality in terms of a gay gene. Or, or drunkenness for that matter, or adultery for that matter, or lying, or greed, or idolatry. It's not about that. It's about that, that all of us have been born with a sinful nature inherited from our parents who inherited it from the first sinner, Adam. That explains all of it. We all have this identity before Christ rescues us from ourselves. We are children of Adam before we're children of God. We have fallen in Adam. We are with Adam in this corruption. We have inherited from Him our sinful natures, our sinful hearts, and our sinful orientation. And consequently, listen, we are all capable of acting on orientations of that sinful nature and heart. Do you understand that? We are all capable of acting on our sinful nature and our sinful hearts with those orientations to any degree. Do you know the reason why God restrained? Do you know the reason why we are restrained from doing some sins? It's because God and His grace restrains us. Even before we're, we're saved. We're all capable of acting on the orientations of our sinful nature and heart. But thankfully, this sinful nature 
And this sinful heart with its sinful orientations are not what God originally designed human beings to be. And all who come to Christ receive Christ and rest in His saving work and are willing to repent from their sins and their self-righteousness, all of those people will be recreated by God. Catch that word in the Gospel as Paul explains it. You are being renewed. You are being recreated. And you're given a new nature with a new heart and new orientations. That is the glory of the Gospel. And you could tell that to people. Accept Christ. Why? You get a, you, you're recreated. You get to be recreated. You'll have a new heart, new orientations. So let her see. Anyone can be given a new nature and a new heart with new orientations through Christ. That's the only condition. Is you got to come to Christ for this. This is what it means to be born again. It's part of the reason why the, the apostles and Jesus used those words. Born again. New nature. Born from above. This is what happens when a sinner is born of God. They get a new nature with a new heart and new orientations. And remember what Jesus taught about that. Go ahead and turn to John 3. It's not something you can do for yourself. Something that God the Spirit does to you. And oh, what a powerful work it is to be born again. John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus. Remember, he's the guy that's coming and asking Jesus, how do we get into the kingdom of God? And his whole life, he had, he had been taught that you can keep the law. You can keep law after law upon law over law <laughs> to try to earn your way into being fit for the kingdom of God. And he had doubts late in life. This was the teacher of Israel. He'd been in the book for many years. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and, and be born? Jesus said, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit is a, is, a, is a reference to the Old Testament and the, the, the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel that explain that the work of the Holy Spirit will come as a new thing in the new covenant and wash people clean and give them a new heart that desires to keep God's law. Water and the Spirit. That's not baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's completely water in the Spirit is the cleansing work of the Spirit and regeneration. Very important for us to understand that. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. See, you can't tell someone struggling with same-sex attraction, try harder. Turn over a new leaf. Get in a good group and you'll be okay. No, no. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You can't accomplish these things with Human effort. But, 
when the Holy Spirit does a work, everything changes. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Titus, turn over to Titus chapter 3. The Apostle Paul talks about the new birth here. Jesus said you must be born again. You, to get into the kingdom of God, you must be born of the Spirit. That's how you get a new nature. That's how you become a new person with a new heart and new orientations. Titus 3, verses 3-7. through seven. Titus 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves, church, we ourselves. Paul says, Titus, tell your church, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. What's the next phrase? Slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's life with the old nature. You're slave to those orientations, whatever they may be. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, what did He do? He saved us. And that salvation does not happen because of works done by us in righteousness, but it happens according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration. There it is. That's born of water and Spirit. The washing of regeneration. You get a new heart. You're cleansed. You get a new nature. You're regenerated. You're born again. You're born, and you're renewed by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow. Paul describes this same transformation in other words as well. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Look back again at Ephesians chapter 4. Now I want to get the other half of those verses. We looked at who we were. Let's notice who we are now with who we were. Ephesians 4, 17. Look at what God does for the sinner who comes to Christ. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire. Here it is. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self. 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you see that? The new self is what? Created after the likeness of God in righteousness and true holiness. When you're born again, the old self dies and is buried with Christ. And you get a new self that's created after the likeness of God in righteousness and true holiness. When you learn of Christ and you believe the truth in Christ, that's what happens to you. The old has passed away. The new has come. Colossians 3, 1-11 says very similar things. Again, jot that reference down. We won't turn there now. But then in verse 25 in Ephesians 4 here, it, he, he, it begins one of those therefore statements. Therefore, therefore what? Since the old you has died, the old nature is gone, the new nature has come, then live like it. That's what he's telling you. Be who you are in Christ. Live like it. Seek to speak the truth. Seek to set aside sinful anger. Don't steal anymore. Be generous instead and so on. That's how this works. New creature. Look at Romans chapter 6. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Is it really 11.15? Wow. I just got here. Man. Romans 6. Look at this. Glorious. You've got to have this with you in your heart. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The strongest Greek negative that Paul writes May it never be by no means. Look at this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Here's what happens in the new birth. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized or united with Christ were baptized into His death? That old nature, that old heart with those old orientations, united with Christ, died with Him in His death. Buried with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might what walk in newness of life. Get a new nature. That's the power of Christ's resurrection. You're united with Christ in His resurrection, so that you can live spiritually with a new heart, new orientations. This is this is priceless for someone struggling with same-sex attraction. Verse five: For if we have been united with Him in His in the death like His. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Why? So that the body of sin, that's it. That's the old nature. The body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You don't have to be enslaved to same-sex attraction anymore or any other sinful orientation or desire. No longer enslaved to it. For the one who has died, the one who, the one who has come into union with Christ through the new birth, who has died has been set free from sin. Meaning, not, not meaning that they're sinless now, 
but that they are no longer enslaved to it. They, are, they don't have to sin anymore. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's regeneration. The old has died, the new has come. New heart, new nature, new orientations. I'll give you another reference. Galatians 5, 16-26 says the same things. The works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. Difference between life and death. And this is the only way, hear me, this is the only way a sinner can stop loving their sin and start hating their sin and learn to overcome their sin. You have to get a new heart. You have to get a new nature with new orientation. It's the only way. The new birth. This is the only way that a homosexual can stop loving their sinful orientation but start hating their sinful orientation and learn to overcome that sinful orientation. This transforming, this transformation is a recreative work of God to remove the sinful nature and give a new nature. You see? We know the cause of homosexual attraction now. That's it. It's the old nature with sinful orientations. Those who are born again still have, though, what Paul calls the flesh, right? To battle against. That's not the same as the old man. It's the flesh. It's the old, the old sinful nature is gone. They now have a new nature that is in fellowship with Christ through the Holy Spirit, but there's this flesh that is there still their fallen humanness, these desires of the body and the mind. But spiritually, you have a new nature that can now war against that. Did you notice that war begin when you got saved? Before, your old nature just followed your, the cravings of your flesh. But now you have a new nature that goes against the cravings of your flesh and is oriented toward Christ instead of Adam. And you have an ability to say no to the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a very important truth for every homosexual, every believer to understand, every sinner to understand and to believe. So I encourage you, point men and women to Christ who can give them a new nature, a new heart, and new orientations. Secondly, this morning, I want to move into the second argument here. I was abused. But that happens often with people that have same-sex attraction. There's a lot of painful, horrific stories. I was abused, confused, and that's how I got where I am now. God could have stopped it, but He didn't. There's nothing I can do to change that. This is who I am. Could you imagine all the turmoil and pain and frustration? I can't even imagine. 
This argument, though, seeks to sidestep the responsibility for being homosexual by attributing their sexual choices to something horrible that happened to them, again, rather than their own sinful nature. Nurture has a part of it. But the ultimate source of sin is the nature. And again, I want to say this, because this is such a complicated and sensitive issue, there's no way that I could be thorough and complete in a few moments with this. Okay. So I don't want you to equate my brevity in this message with the weight that these kinds of issues deserve. But I want to touch on a few truths that we must grasp and speak in love and compassion to those who would respond to us with this argument. I was abused. One, first of all, you can see in your notes, abuse is the result of human depravity and God hates it. That is so important to know. Ask the Holy Spirit if if someone tells you that, and that's part of their struggle for turning to Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with God's perspective on sin. Grieve with them over this atrocity. Grieve with them. Don't just take it lightly, right? And I, I don't think you would. Hate this sin like God hates it. Show them something of God's attitude towards sin and invite them to take refuge in God. Psalm 11.5 says this, the Lord tests the righteous. Listen, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Did you hear that? That's the Bible. I didn't say that. That's the Bible. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God hates sin that much. Proverbs 6, 8, 16-18 There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. God hates those things. Romans 12.19 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the thing, dear ones. We, we do want God to be merciful to sinners like us. We all deserve His wrath, right? It's true, we're sinful. But you know what? This, this modern era seeks to remove the holy wrath of God. And you know what? The holy wrath of God is a refuge for those who hate sin with Him and have been ruined by sin. It's a ref- See, God hates because He loves. He, he hates what destroys those whom He loves. If you love, then you will hate what violates your love. And God loves and hates perfectly and sinlessly. Invite that friend to to not turn against God because of what happened to them, but take refuge in God, the One who hates sin more than anyone, to take refuge in Him through Christ and trust Him to do what is right. Secondly, so much more can be said about all of these, but I'm just going to touch on these. Letter B, abuse is not outside the reach of God's sovereign goodness. Because things like this happen in the world, 
You must have a solid biblical theology of God's sovereignty over evil. That's the only way you can have an anchor for your ship in the storms of all the horror that happens in this world. You have to have a solid biblical theology of God's sovereignty over evil. And listen, His sinless use of sin for His own glory. God is not guilty for sin, but He allows it for His own glory and purposes. If you're going to survive in this world as a child of God, you must have a solid biblical theology of God's sovereignty. And you need to be able to speak that truth to the one that's struggling with this issue. Tell them about Joseph. Tell them how how Joseph's brothers abused him and, and treated him horribly and threw him in a pit and sold him as a slave. And then when he got there, he was treated horribly. And then when he got to prison for something he didn't do, he was treated horribly by being neglected and forgotten. But God hadn't forgotten Joseph, right? I mean, you just watched Joseph's life and one catastrophe after another took him down a long road into prison. And it was all under God's sovereignty. And then what happened? God remembered him in a sense. Not like, oh, I forgot about Joseph. But God pulled him up out of, out of that prison and set him as the second man in Egypt, right? Why? Why did God allow all of that horror to happen to Joseph so that he could get to the place where God would then use him to bring Israel under the care of Egypt so that Israel would grow and to become a great nation and be on their way to becoming a people from whom Christ would be born. That's what it's all about. God's redemptive plan was moving forward and God sinlessly used sin toward Joseph to accomplish all of that. And that's why when we get to Genesis 50, verse 20, we hear Joseph say, as for you, brothers, you meant evil for me. But what? God meant that same evil for good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God causes some to suffer to bring about salvation for many. That's just one example of the myriads of examples throughout redemptive history where God uses sin sinlessly to move ahead His redemptive plan. You've got to show them that kind of stuff. God is good. God is good. He can do that. And the greatest example of all is Christ and the cross. We ask ourselves the question, is the cross good or bad? Yes, it is. Both. Acts chapter 2, 23-24, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified Jews. Right? Peter's talking to the Jews who, who were right there and saw the crucifixion of Jesus. And killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was killed, tortured horribly by the hands of lawless men. But that was all part of God's sovereign purposes. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible for Him to be held by it. Christ was despised 
Christ was rejected, mocked, beaten, abused, shamed publicly at the hands of lawless men. And God turned that most hideous horror, that most hideous hour, into the greatest event of redemption and salvation ever. That is the sovereign power of God in His goodness. And Jesus, who knew and saw ahead of time what joyful, glorious salvation His Father would accomplish through His own torture, endured it. And He did something I think is very helpful for us as an example when things that happen to us are so shameful. It said He endured it and despised what? Despised the shame. He despised the public shame that was a part of His torture that led to our salvation. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. We as individuals are not in control of everything that happens to us. And some of the things that happen to us are unthinkably shameful. But they're not beyond the power of the sovereign goodness of God to turn them to accomplish His redemptive plans in our lives and the lives of other people. We see this again and again. And that's how God the Son humbled Himself to bear the weight of your sorrow and shame and pain and sin and bring you up out of it and give you a new name and a new father and a new family who loves you more than you've ever experienced before. Christ understands your pain and your shame. These are the things you can tell them. He understands that. And He can lift you up out of it. Trust Him. Follow His faith in the Heavenly Father who is the Master of taking the most hideous hours and transforming them into catalysts for eternal joy. If you turn to Christ, you look at them and you love them through tears and you tell them, if you will turn to Christ and away from your sin and you receive Him as your Savior and Lord and rest in His saving works, He will save you from your guilt. He will save you from your shame. He'll save you from bitterness. He'll save you from your hopelessness and your own sinfulness and even the wrath of God. And He'll give you love and joy and peace through the Holy Spirit. Listen, tell them this. Don't let that sin against you be your excuse for continuing to sin against God and reject His Son and all that He graciously would give to you in salvation. Tell them that let us see that abuse does not have to define their identity. That's part of the problem of our culture. What happens to us and what we desire, we think that's who we are. Let God tell you who you are. Tell them. Turn to Christ. He will take your old identity. What's your old identity? Okay, abused, shamed, discarded, unwanted, all of those sinful behaviors that you've pursued. That's how you think of your identity. And He'll crucify that and He'll bury that. It'll never be your identity again. And He will give you a new identity. Chosen, loved, holy, blameless, child, redeemed, forgiven, heir, belong. 
And you will become a reason for praising God's glory. And you will be purposed for good works. That's what Ephesians talks about. Get, get a, point them to the book of Ephesians. One, two, three, four, and so on. And all of that will become a reality the moment someone hears the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believes in Christ and sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 2, 9-10, through You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. You hear that? They can have that. You can have that. So that you would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. I tell you, this regeneration work of God is awesome. It makes everything new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. God is awesome in power and salvation. Turn to Him. Trust in Christ. That's what your friend needs to hear. And one more point on this is so important. Abuse does not define the future for those who are in Christ. If you turn to Christ and away from your sin and you receive Him as your Savior, tell them this. One day, your body that reminds you of things you wish you could forget forever will be clothed with a new eternal body just like Christ's. That's the glory of it. Ephesians or Philippians 3, 20-21 Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So come to Christ. You're going to get a new body someday. You'll be perfect. All that the Father gives me will come. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus says. John 6, 37-40. One more point. Thirdly, same-sex attraction is okay as long as I don't act on it. Let's move through this quickly. This argument is sometimes an effort to resist change and still enjoy fantasies of sin. I can have sinful desires in my mind. That's okay, just as long as I don't act on it. This, one come, this, this, this argument can come right to our doorstep, can it? Just take same-sex attraction away and put whatever sinful desire is in your mind. It's okay to have it in your mind. You can, you can entertain it there, but just as long as you don't act on it. Sometimes that argument seems to be an effort by some professing Christians to make a compromise with the world. Again, same-sex traction is not okay. No sinful desire in the mind is okay. It's still sin. How do I know that? Write this reference down. Matthew 5, 27-30. Jesus says so very clearly, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. 
That's Jesus' words. In other words, sins of the heart are just as dangerous and just as worthy of hell as sins of the hands. You see? And where do those sinful desires come from? Right? They come from our hearts. They come from the, the sinful nature. Or, or they come from our flesh as a believer. We still wrestle with our flesh. But, same-sex attraction can be forgiven, let her be. 1 John 1, 5-9, it can be for, even sins of the mind can be forgiven. This is the message that we've heard from Him, 1 John 5, 1-9, and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. We say we have fellowship with Him while walking in the darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what happens? The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We begin by confessing that the sin of our mind, the thoughts of our mind that are, that are toward homosexuality or any other sin, those are still sins. That's learning to walk in the light. We confess them as they are and God will forgive them through Christ. You battle those desires and thoughts and war against them for the rest of your life. You might, but you're still forgiven in Christ. 1 John 2, 1-2 My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. We have righteousness even when we have sinful thoughts. and War against them. Shut them away with God's Word. Fight against them by the Spirit of God. But you're still righteous in Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's taken our guilt. He's taken our wrath once and for all on the cross. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And remember this. If you're a true believer, then same-sex attraction is not who you are anymore. It's part of the desires of your flesh, maybe. That's not how you are. You're a new creature in Christ with a new identity. If you think it's who you are, then you won't fight against it. But if your identity is in Christ in heavenly places, then you'll understand that same-sex attraction is a sinful craving of your own flesh, your own heart, and you'll fight against it by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And then last, you must war against same-sex attraction knowing that it no longer owns you and one day it will be totally gone. Yes, those thoughts are sinful and must be fought against, but by the power of the Spirit, you can fight against them and one day they will be gone. Write down this reference, Romans 6, 17-18. Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Obedient from the what? Heart. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Paul talks about sinful desires in his own mind that he wars against. The very next chapter, Romans 7. He says, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now I know that if I do not what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. Verses 15-25, through 25, talk about this. 
So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. See, he's a believer and he's warring against his flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sound like a war, isn't it? That's what happens. Now if I do not do what I want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find a law to be in my heart that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. He's tired of this. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh I serve the law of sin. He understands this battle well. So does a person with same-sex attraction who's become a believer. They may wrestle with that, but they're still righteous in Christ. They're still atoned for, but they're going to fight against that by the power of God. That's why Colossians 3, 1-4 says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Write that text down. Colossians 3, 1-4. That is the big difference. Listen. That is the big difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Believer, believers struggle against their sin. Unbelievers struggle to continue in sin. One dear Christian brother said this way, a Christian is someone who desires the righteousness that he lacks rather than someone who desires the sin that is forbidden. You see? That's how we can change. And thanks be to God that for those who are in Christ, all of their desires for righteousness will soon become reality and their, sins for, their desires for sin will be gone someday completely when they see Jesus, right? 1 John 3, 1-3. When He appears, we will be like Him. We will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as He is pure. Then in closing, please remember, keep speaking sound doctrine. Tell them these things. They need to hear these truths. It will give them hope. Keep speaking sound doctrine in accordance with the Gospel. Yes, show them their sin. Point to the law of God, but give them Gospel too. Saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And in loving humility, speak these things to them. And pray. Pray that that God will work His salvation for His glory. Before we pray, I just want to ask you, are you a new creature in Christ? Are you? Does that, that sentence describe you what I said earlier? One who desires the righteousness that they lack? Or are you a person that desires the sin that is forbidden? If you say, man, my life is all about desiring sin and pursuing it even secretly, Come to Christ. Living a life like that will end in death and eternal separation for God, from God. Don't go that way. Especially since there's all this wonderful salvation that you can have through Christ. Don't trust yourself to save yourself either. Nothing you can do can accomplish these spiritual things. Only Christ can do that through the new birth. Come to Christ. Confess your sin to Him. Confess your need for Him. Trust Him. Receive 
His saving work and believe the promises of God that He will save you. And you'll be a new creature in Christ as well. It doesn't matter what your struggle with sin is. God is powerful enough to give any sinner a new nature with a new heart and new orientations. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to You asking once again, seeing the work of salvation, knowing that You have called us to communicate these words of truth and law and Gospel to those around us as You have had communicated to us. And we are not sufficient for these things. There are so many deep and, and perverse and horrific entanglements of sin. We cannot untwine people. Help us to speak Your words, Your life-giving words. And through us, Father, please call darkness to light and death to life. We ask You to use us right here in this room, each one of us. Equip us with Your truth, Your words, these Gospel gems to speak them so that You would, through us, through our words and the power of Christ, transfer people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Christ. We ask You to do this for Your glory. And even as we dive deeply and equip ourselves with these truths, may we grow to, to, to have Paul's perspective understanding our own sinfulness better and glorying more fully in Your mercy and patience and have a greater understanding of how You save us and how we change by Your recreative, renewing work. Father, You are glorious. Your salvation is glorious. May we be filled with the wonder, love, and joy of Your works. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.